He who fights monsters should look to it that he himself does not become a monster. I am on the unfettered pursuit of truth. I'm Kayla Perry, and this is Honestly Unorthodox. All right, everybody, welcome back. Today is going to be informal, Kayla, where you only get me answering probably a slew of questions, some of which may not be very exciting. Others have been frequently asked, so I'm happy to answer them. Before I hop into questions, I would really love to tell a story that I've been laughing about for the past two days. And today really was the nice cherry on top of this story. And I'm going somewhere with this, I promise. So I don't know how the topic exactly got brought up with my students, but we're a very, it's very open book class. We constantly use the metaphor that life is one large, continuous open book test. So to I guess, score well on the open book test that is real life. We have to ensure that we are actively participating in all of the things that we encounter, whether they're adverse situations, whether they're great situations, whether they're wins or losses. That's the only way to derive enough meaning to be able to pass a series of open book tests. So my class, very open book. We've established this from the get-go. And the topic of marriage got brought up and one of my kids came out and said, you know what, Miss Perry, I'm just, I'm actually shocked. I was shocked when I first heard that you actually have a husband. And I laughed because I thought what she was referring to was you're just so crazy. How could anybody marry you? (laughs) But I asked her, oh, what do you mean? And she said, well, I just thought you were a lesbian. (laughs) And I just, first of all, I I laughed hysterically. I thought that was hilarious. One, that she was comfortable enough to say that to me. Two, that she came to the conclusion that I couldn't possibly be straight. So me being me, I laughed and I said, really, what do you mean? And before she even answered, she goes, wait, this is seriously the first time you've heard this before? So she was shocked that others have not asked me if I'm a lesbian. (laughs) I can't can't honestly say that I've ever been asked this question uh, by anybody else. I think that I've had the discussion several times, especially with my pal Kate. We joke constantly that we are very masculine women um, with minimum femininity And so I've kind of come to accept that about myself, but to the degree that it exudes, um, I guess, homosexuality, that just really got me thinking. And after she finished with her statement of shock about how nobody could have ever imagined that Miss Perry was a lesbian, she said, well, you just kind of act like a guy and you only wear Vans. And (laughs) I just... (laughs) I I know I talked about this in my stories a little bit, so I apologize if uh, if this is a repeat story. But I did want to go into more depth about this for the mere, f- I guess, merely to talk about the fact that I could have very easily taken this to the degree of getting offended or 
um, gone the route of saying to myself, oh, she just stereotyped me based on a physical attribute or on a personality trait um, or a clothing choice. That's obviously bigoted. And then it really got me thinking about all of these isms that we have just not only developed, but embraced in the last two to three years, they're just completely fake. I mean, I can't imagine that people are truly and honestly outraged by the types of comments that I heard from this student. I can't, I can't imagine that someone would hear something like this and immediately jump to correcting the other person, policing the other person, and making sure the other person knows how inappropriate or rude or mean the statement was. Now, this would have been a slightly different conversation had it been delivered in the sense of, oh my God, Miss Perry, you just dress like a total butch. And there were undercurrents or undertones of some sort of derogatory or mean-spirited nature to what was being said. Um, that would be a different conversation. I can't say I would have responded much differently. I probably would have still given this person the benefit of the doubt and responded with some, I guess, aspect of a chuckle. And if it did turn out that this person was trying to uh, hurt my feelings in some way or make some sort of character attack, I could have taken a couple uh, different options or a couple different routes here. And this is what I teach my students constantly. I could take the route of one, staying neutral, refraining from saying, no, I'm not. And, and, trying really hard to not move the conversation into a yes, I am, no, I'm not, yes, it is, no, it isn't type of conversation because those are useless and they get both people nowhere. They leave both people frustrated and there is no resolve. And this isn't to say that every conversation needs to necessarily have a resolve, but sometimes um, the quote unquote solution or outcome is simply that you hear each other. And when things when people harp on making sure the other person feels the need to keep saying, no, it's not. Yes, it is. That's the opposite of, uh, of what we would want to go for in a conversation. So in that sense, I could either chuckle, I could continue to approach this in a lighthearted, um, joking intonation yet neutral type of manner where I would continue to ask questions to see where the other person is coming from. If I found that this person was just being mean-spirited or was doing so to try to get a reaction out of me, those would be great times to remove myself from the conversation and not bother indulging the person any further. And I definitely learned this the hard way in the past year that I've been trying to bring these real life conversations to the social media landscape. I'm actually very thankful that these things happened um, in person before digitally, because digitally is a whole different hellhole, which I will get to in a little bit. Had I chosen or was unable to walk away from this person, let's say, so let's say this was a student I was lecturing. Um, I, I really couldn't kick them out of my class unless they were literally physically harming me or somebody else. I don't think I would kick them out of class anyway. 
because I think that would be a thought experiment in and of itself. If this person continued to interrupt me while I was talking to tell me um, their negative beliefs or perceptions of me, I would be really interested, one, to see how they would express them in front of 35 of their peers and two, what their peers would say in response. And I think that would also be a great opportunity for me to model what um, what appropriate behavior looks like when we are attacked. And the appropriate behavior, it's definitely the hardest type. It's definitely the hardest thing to do to stay neutral and act like you're unfazed by it. Uh, but that's what I would model. That's what I do when sometimes my kids, we've developed such as this uh, really strong relationship. They do sometimes toe the line of things that um, not are inappropriate, but could be a little bit too harsh. They could be tiptoeing around being a little shit just for the sake of making me angry or getting under my skin, which is to be expected partially because most of them are 18, 19, 20 years old. Um, but that's also kind of the human tendency. You mess with people that you feel close with and that you feel safe messing with to a degree. And I took this conversation and I laughed about it. I thought about all of the times where I could have easily gone the route of getting offended. And then I started wondering, I, I don't think I understand the, the sensation or the experience of being offended. <laughs> I mean, I've had very mean things said to me. I have heard very um, weird, inappropriate, jarring, disgusting things. But I guess when I think of the word offended, I associate offense with the pearl clutching kind of, oh, how could you say that? And I don't believe I've ever actually had that reaction to anything I've seen or heard or read, especially things that were not directed at me. Which brings me to social media. Now, I posted a screenshot recently from an, a prospective employer from about a year ago when I was looking for part-time work while I was building up the business. And in response um, to me asking her, thanking her for the interview, saying, you know, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Please let me know if there's anything you need from me. Can't wait to hear back from you. All the usual schmoozing that you do following an interview. This is the email that I got in response. Hi, Kayla. Thank you so much for the time to meet about our BCBA position. After reviewing your references and social media, we believe that your values and approach to ABA differs from ours. And at this point, we are not the best match. We truly wish you luck in finding the right BCBA position for you. Okay, let's dissect this. <laughs> First of all, I didn't provide any references. So her bringing that up in the email was a load of shit. There were no references provided. And this email was sent to me the same day that I interviewed. Um, so there was just, there was no way that even if I provided references, she, she would have been able to, um, 
to reach all of these people in an adequate amount of time to make a decision so quickly. And our interview itself was only about 15 minutes on Zoom. And I bring that up because now that references are uh, not even an adequate piece of information in this in this uh, in this email, then we go to my social media. Now, for people who listen to my podcast, I think that people who take the time to listen to me and to support my social media tell me, for the most part, that they appreciate what I say and that they. Um, they don't necessarily agree with everything I put out there, which I love. Um, but they respect my um, they respect me coming out and saying things. This being said, <laughs> someone who who reads my social media, which is directed at nobody at all, they're my thoughts that are just kind of being put out into the world for people to make of them what they will. For someone to use this and say, we looked at your social media and based on that, we have decided that your values and your approach to ABA differs from ours, that for aside from the fact that it just oozes insecurity as well as entitlement to me, it goes to show how dysfunctional we have allowed relationships to become because of digital communication. And I find it wildly sad that we're no longer characterized by our values, really. We're no longer characterized by the great work we do, by our work ethic, by our um, good Samaritanism, by anything that typically would characterize a person. We're characterized only by how we look in a series, a grid of squares on social media or a long slew of 180 character messages on Twitter. Although I don't see any behavior analysts on Twitter because behavior analysts tell me all the time that they don't like to read. So <laughs> that makes it actually really difficult um, on Instagram when I get it, things that are more visually appealing or that are easier to digest because they're provided with a picture tend to stick more. I'm doing air quotes when I say that, that tend to mentally stick more doesn't necessarily mean that there's any merit to them. And when we rely only on these little squares to decide for ourselves what another person's values must be, I think that is a huge problem because then we go on to treat them as if we know what their values are and we respond to their every behavior with a preconceived idea of what this person um, must think or must be or must believe in. And by looking at my social media where I don't think I bring up much of anything personal, um, I could see if I was, you know, posting swastikas or, you know, dick pics, then I could absolutely understand why someone, an employer wouldn't want someone like that um, as part of their team. Because with everyone being so chronically online, it can uh, be a bit of a problem and it can be a risk for employers to bring people on that are very active on social media and uh, post things that are inappropriate and could 
I guess, to a degree, tarnish the reputation of the company. So I I fully understand that. And to a degree, I even support that. Where that ends for me is my social media is operating as Kayla Perry, as personal Kayla Perry, like my real world life. Um, there are beliefs in there about ABA. I, I very much... I very much see myself through the eyes of my work. I'm very work and goal oriented. And most of what I do and talk about is for the purpose of achieving something, accomplishing something, or chasing excellence in some sort of way. So it can be argued that it's some form of a professional account, but it wasn't a professional account for Chicago Autism Behavior Services. It was a quote unquote professional slash personal account for Kayla Perry. So I was operating under my own name, under my own person. I wasn't operating under the handle of, you know, Kayla Perry BCBA for XYZ company. So that's where this email really gets me is number one, even going on social media as part of the interview process, because when I did talk to other candidates, um, Social media was not brought up during their interview, which I found interesting. And me and Matt Broad had talked about this a couple episodes ago where, you know, if you're going to use social media as a metric, fine, but then use that same metric for every single person, apply it across the board so that there's at least some sort of uh, even keel fairness. But in this case, I'm unsure if there were, there were rumors in the grapevine already, I'm unsure if she had already been following me and recognized my name. I, I really don't know. I, I did respond to the email and I never heard back, which I'm not surprised by. But when I, I, I've read this probably over 300 times by now because it, it took a lot for me to not respond with seething rage when I did get this on um, April 19th of 2022. But the end is the most troubling piece. It's not even the social media part. That's the most troubling piece. It's, we believe your values and approach to ABA differs from ours. So it is the obsession with making sure that whoever you hire sees the science of behavior analysis and its application the exact same as the employer sees it. That makes for pretty terrible science. That also makes for very rigid, black and white, cognitively distorted practitioners who only surround themselves with people who believe the exact same thing. So if you are all supporting one idea um, and, and you're all existing in this little silo of, we all, all of our values match all of our approaches to aba match when you inevitably make an error because we all do you won't realize that it's an error it'll be seen as just part of the process of the little tribe that you have developed amongst yourselves there's there's no other frame of reference there i mean i see this as one of my kids brought up the point of um, if you were blind and you 
kind of learned the shape of a sphere and a cube by feel. Uh, so you can't see it, obviously, if you are visually impaired. If you are blind, you can't see it. But if you're handed a sphere, you'll be able to label it as a sphere. If you're handed a cube, you'll be able to la uh, label it as a cube just by feeling it. But if that person were to regain their sight and they were presented with a sphere and a cube and they couldn't touch it, they could only look at it, they wouldn't be able to tell the difference between those two because they only learned the association between feel and name. This is this is how I see these little silos in the science happening is we obsess over one very specific, very narrow metric of how we measure things or how we believe things should be measured or quantified uh, or, or qualified or even verified for that matter. And we think that everything else is the wrong thing. So my approach of ABA differing one, she really didn't ever ask me any questions about my approach to ABA nor my values. So, you know, all of these things are being pulled from a few squares on Instagram that really only account for about 20% of how I actually see the world. And I think that this was just a very frankly, demoralizing and dehumanizing <laughs> email to put in writing. I mean, I've, I've heard things like this verbally. So I've gotten quite a few other people that have told me that they saw my social media and were concerned about it, but they were smart enough to keep that as a verbal conversation. Something like this, um, someone actually messaged me when I posted this and said, I actually think that this technically could be illegal. I don't know if it's illegal. I mean, employers have every right to look at your social media if they want to. Um, I think when it becomes discriminatory, uh, could I possibly have a case or have sued or sued for discrimination? Yeah, I have, I have no idea. It wasn't something, especially financially, that was my whole purpose of looking for a job. Trust me, I wasn't trying to find, you know, emotional or clinical enlightenment in this field anymore. I wasn't in a position to take this any further. But yeah, I think that this is something that actually happens that people don't believe happens. I think they just feel like, I even hate saying cancel culture now, but I, for lack of a better phrase... Uh, the people that say cancel culture doesn't exist, I very um, vehemently disagree with that. So while we're on the note of a rigid adherence to certain protocols and only obsessing and using interventions, treatment approaches, whoever, whatever, um, we are doing that right now with a couple of interventions and a couple of researchers. So a couple of researchers have grown immensely popular in recent years, and that's fine. People are allowed to be popular, but I also should remind everybody, and I feel terrible that I even have to remind people of this, science is not a popularity contest, and neither is, is being a therapist. <laughs> so even though we're in a people-centered field, even though we're, we work in a setting where it is important to build rapport and to 
to some degree, at least be respected by the people we work with. I think that's very different from being liked, which I'll get to in a second. Um, We've taken to prioritizing things that we enjoy and things that make us feel nice over the actual merit of what is being discussed. And with very popular researchers, we don't bother to even look at the research that they're putting out there. Um, I, I keep thinking about an article from quite a while ago, and I won't get into too much depth because uh, me and a couple other of my favorite people will be podcasting about this next week. But there's the concept of today's ABA through the eyes of Greg Hanley, because Greg Hanley is the one that wrote the article about today's ABA. I think at the time that it was written, it really did call for some sort of reform in the field, um, which in some degrees is necessary. I just think that we've lost sight of what actually needs to be reformed. So we have an excessive focus on all of the quote unquote harm done to people and the history of the field. And we use the field's apparent shaky, shady, unethical history as grounds for uh, the justification in destroying what currently is. And that's what people have interpreted today's ABA as. And not only have they interpreted it that way, they are falling into these little factions of if you are not practicing today's ABA, which is Hanley's ABA, then you are not compassionate. If you are not compassionate, then you shouldn't even work with children and you shouldn't even be a behavior analyst or therapist or, or whatever your job title is. And While we're on the topic of research, if we're really going to go the route of judging something by its merit, I don't think people actually realize that there is not a lick of evidence to support much of the research that is put out there by anyone who touts trauma-informed care. So skills-based treatment at its core, awesome. We want to empower clients. We want to... um, We want to build skills within them so that we don't have to rely on physical restraint, unnecessary physical restraint, um, unnecessary restrictive procedures, uh, anything that could be considered a little bit, I guess, barbaric in modern day or unnecessarily harsh. I think anybody with a pulse would agree that those are values that we all hold very near and dear. And if we didn't, I don't think we would be in this field. On that same token, again, going off of a an imaginary idea that the field was unnecessarily abusive and that's old ABA. This is today's ABA, which will be entirely different. And today's ABA uses skills-based treatment. There isn't much evidence to support skills-based treatment, which I don't even know that anybody would be able to argue that or support that because I honestly don't believe people read any of Greg Hanley's research. I think that they see a headline and I think that they see cute little graphics of trees and hands holding and TIC and they think, you know what? 
I want to be a good person, which again, I want to be a good person too. But part of being a good person means that you actually do your part and doing your part. I'll tell you what it doesn't look like. Doing your part doesn't look like seeing something that looks nice and then claiming that you are that thing and using it, using it as this badge of honor that justifies cruelty towards people who don't agree with that approach. There is no evidence to support trauma-informed care as an intervention. There is no evidence to support that trauma-informed care is even an effective means whatsoever in terms of positive outcomes for anybody who has experienced trauma. There is very, very minimal evidence to support the long-term generalizability of skills-based treatment. There have been no studies that have been able to replicate much of any of um, Greg's studies. So all of these things being said, I want to remind listeners, one, this doesn't make Greg or any researcher a bad person. This doesn't make science wrong. This doesn't make him or any researcher or any reader or any behavior analyst compassionate or non-compassionate. Science is not, not compassionate and it's not callous and it's not happy and it's not relaxed and engaged. Science is science. Science is facts and numbers. Numbers and facts do not discriminate and numbers and facts also don't have feelings. So to try to turn a scientific approach into something that is compassionate only and happy, relaxed, and engaged only and making sure that it has this beautiful, positive perception But we stop there and we don't bother to do our own research to realize that this positive perception doesn't have any long-term impact, long-term positive impact, I should say. It makes us look unbelievably stupid, but everybody's doing it. So when we just keep recycling these refurbished, repackaged ideas that we don't even understand we're supporting... But they're mentioned so many times and with such concentrated, tremendous frequency, they actually start to gain credibility. And so there are a few people like me who come out and challenge these things and I'm seen as an asshole or I'm seen as the one that's not compassionate or not mindful of how uh, uh, children feel. And that is the opposite of the truth. I would go so far as to say that people who are that blinded by um, something that we like without even understanding it, that's where the actual quote unquote literal harm and abuse happens. Because then we inadvertently teach clients to respond in the exact same way, that all it takes is something sounding nice and it must be true. Something seems like it's a good idea, so it must be legitimate. I really like the way that I feel when I use it, so that must make it true. Feelings have a place, but when we're trying to turn science into something that is a feeling being, we run into huge, huge problems. Which reminds me a little bit of some of the movements here. So we have the neurodiversity movement. We have the do better movement. We have, 
today's ABA, I lump a lot of these together because they all repeat uh, very similar words and phrases. So the fallacy of esoteric knowledge tells us that there is some knowledge that's reserved only for some wise and enlightened, um, almost godly type of figure. So, you know, it's the the perception that most normal people or most moral masses cannot possibly understand, and we don't even deserve to understand, not until we become as wise as XYZ person, not until we become as trusted or enlightened or spiritually advanced as XYZ person. That's how I see our field right now. We take one researcher that we really like, we take one approach that we really like, and it becomes this mystical fantasy that we get off on. And anybody that doesn't agree with that approach or doesn't support it, they are seen as you just don't know enough. You are just not progressive. You are just not spiritually advanced enough. And you know what? Quite frankly, you don't even deserve to be taught until you, quote unquote, do the work so that you could join us is how esoteric knowledge tends to go. And I worry about the long-term impact of that with people who claim to be grounded in science, but are also working with clients in teaching them skills that are necessary to uh, form meaningful relationships with people. I, I don't know how these people can form any sort of meaningful relationship, <laughs> believing in the things that they do. Um, and, and not so much believing in the things that they do, but holding on to the belief and shunning other types of beliefs. I think that that's where um, it makes it really hard for those that do believe in things so rigidly to teach other people how to be flexible. Because I'm not necessarily saying that you need to suffer something to help another person that is suffering that same thing. Um, I'm sure not all oncologists have experience with cancer, but they're able to help people that are suffering um, with a cancer diagnosis. Much like a lot of the people who treated me, they didn't have anorexia. They had no history of anorexia and they helped me tremendously. So I think that you don't have to suffer the same thing or make the same sacrifice as somebody else um, to understand and be able to help them with whatever they're struggling with. However, I think it's important that we at least share the same goals of research, conversation, uh, discourse, what have you. Because if the goal of people within these movements is you are not enlightened enough, you need to do better. And the goal of people like me who are like, okay, no, thanks. I'll just take not being enlightened and being damned to hell. My, my goal is merely to hear a different perspective because I actually, I truly want to understand what leads people to believe in things so strongly. I think that if the goal isn't established in the beginning and we're not taking the time to even um, entertain establishing a goal with a person who believes in things very differently from us, then this field will go absolutely nowhere. And we're already headed into very murky waters with just 
obscene amounts of incompetence because look at everything that I've been talking about for the last 36 minutes. That is, that's, that is incompetence, not reading research and only blindly going along with a headline. That is incompetence copying and pasting because we think that it's the right or socially acceptable thing to say that is incompetence. Feeling that we can't handle an emotional reaction from a client, so we decide to play it off as some sort of attempt at HRE or lessening a trauma response where trauma doesn't even exist, that is nothing short of incompetence. And I don't say incompetence in a belittling way where it is, I am the holy enlightened one and you are incompetent. It is, we need to do something about this so that our entire field doesn't become one big laughing stock <laughs> because that's where I feel like we're actually headed in a lot of ways. I feel like we behave in ways that are just so absolutely ridiculous and uh, kind of embarrassing. It, it's embarrassing to me that we could harp on data and evidence and science. And then we, when we're faced with an article that we haven't read, we try to make up an answer as to what we believe the article was about instead of just saying, I don't know. Or when faced with a headline that we disagree with, we just keep repeating the same headline that we've told ourselves is the good one over and over without understanding that the actual article itself shows that there was no significant outcome of the study. <laughs> I mean, there was an article that was um, published by one research, uh, researcher earlier this year talking about a supposed gender pay gap in behavior analysis. And the title was Pay Disparity Between um, or, or something like pay disparity and gender equality in the field of behavior analysis. And the caption when the person posted this article was, it is obvious that gender disparity is still a problem in our field. Whereas if you read the article, it explicitly states in the article that there were zero disparities found between genders. In behavior analysis. And it mentioned that multiple times. There were no significant differences found in pay due to gender alone. The differences in pay had to do with education level, where you lived, what setting you worked in, how long you've been in the field, your experience in research versus applied practice. There are so many variables that we skip over because we chase some cute little Canva posting about percentages. We see, I mean, we see this almost every single day where, you know, someone will talk about literal harm or autistic people being oppressed because of, uh, you know, the medical model and uh, an oppressive society. And we think, oh my God, that's terrible. Poor autistic people, which to a degree, yes, it seems noble. Who would want to, uh, who would want to think that they play a part in the maltreatment of anybody, let alone vulnerable populations like those with special needs or those who are mentally ill um, or those who are disadvantaged. So I do, I do understand those standpoints. What I 
am growing very bored and tired of is actually finding that we have to tell people, you know, did you actually read the paragraph? Did you read the paper (laughs) or did you just read the headline? Um, and this is where the today's ABA and the, the appeal to novelty comes in is we're like goldfish and squirrels. When anything new that's presented, we tell ourselves, Oh, I read about this two years ago. Today's ABA needs to be better than old ABA because old ABA is abusive. Old ABA is only done by white dudes who have been in the field for 50 years. Old ABA is cruel and old ABA causes trauma. I am doing new ABA. That is today's ABA. So, We inject ourselves and others with the theory that just because something is new, we conflate new with improved. It's new. It's the latest discovery. It must be better than the old. It's a novel concept. It must be better than whatever we were doing before. Oh my God, have you heard of trauma-informed care? It is so much better than compassionate care. It obviously is an upgrade. These are all things that we tell ourselves without reading one single sentence from any actual research article. And it blows my mind that we, that we still continue to, to (laughs) these conversations. Um, if you could even call them that they're not conversations, they're, they're not, they're not conversations at all. Um, one of them I saw recently in a message I received was going on a long spiel about, I had posted about pretty much everything that I've been just rambling on about for the last 40 minutes in a condensed manner on Instagram. And the message that I got in return was um, pretty full of a bunch of things that I actually never said. (laughs) I'm going to read part of this. Okay. So... The first question, what is not credible about knowing someone's history? I have never stated that knowing someone's history is not credible. There's that. What is not important about agreeing to interactions or engagements with others, whether that's in therapy or not? This was in reference to my saying that there's no research or evidence to support the concept of assent. Um, You'll notice You'll notice in this question the way it's framed. She says, what is not important? I never once stated anything related to importance. I never once stated anything about it not being an imperative skill to be able to advocate for ourselves. So this is what people do. They try to like very subtly put words in that you never said, but they like to tell you that you implied it, which is their issue. I mean, if you saw, if you realized an implication or perceived something to be an implication, that could be a conversation. But when it's brought up in ways that pertain to putting words in my mouth, then it's just a non-conversation. So claiming that I find these things unimportant is something that I never said. Listening and learning is a skill set. Talking and teaching is also a skill set. What is the argument? I made my argument very clear by stating that there is no evidence to support the 
theories that are out there that are very popular. <laughs> I mean, and putting things in like listening and learning is a skill. So are talking and teaching that has absolutely nothing to do with what was said. So those are nice little de deflectors and attempts at saying, well, look at what you tried to say. So this is what we would typically call a straw man argument is diluting and destroying your argument so that it's easier for another person to attack um, so that they could come out as victorious on the other side. This statement finished up with, I guess I'm confused as to why you would say these things don't have a place. I never said they didn't have a place. Affirming any group? Neurodiversity is who we work with. Is it not important to know your audience? Notice the repeated use of rhetorical questions. So is it not important to you? I'm confused when you say they don't have a place. So Jumbling all of these phrases together, that one I never said, two that are completely distorted versions of what the post was actually about, and then three, throwing in a bunch of distracting statements that have nothing to do with the post itself, um, and then finishing with the emotional, the appeal to emotions of, we serve these people, don't you think it's important to know them, is incredibly manipulative. I could have responded to this with another novel by saying something like, why would you say that I don't care about autistic people? Of course I care about neurodiverse people. I'm in this field for a reason. And I could have go on, gone on to continue to defend all of the reasons why I disagree. Instead, I pointed out very simple things. One, there is a massive difference between things that are important and things that are logical. Two, there is a massive difference between understanding someone's history and claiming that we have the skills to treat a traumatic history. Three, there is a massive difference between things that are important and things that are evidence-based. Just because something is evidence-based doesn't mean it's important. And just because something is important doesn't mean that it's legitimate. Just because something is compassionate doesn't mean that it's effective. People that are outwardly compassionate can be clinically idiots. <laughs> I mean, people that are wildly intelligent can also be clinical idiots. We're all prone to making the same errors and falling into the same sort of ridiculous reasoning. And I would like to think that a lot of us, they, we don't do it on purpose. We do it because we believe in something and maybe we get caught up in what we believe in to the degree that we convince ourselves and others um, as to theories that we don't even understand why we support. So on that note, I will keep everybody posted as to the episode that I will be recording that goes into way more depth about trauma-informed care and today's ABA and things like that. And if you do have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can always email me at theangrybehavioranalyst at gmail.com. Give us a like, give us a review, give us a few stars, and we will see you next week. <laughs>